Welcome to Three Things with Rick Elias, featuring fascinating conversations with some of the world's most insightful people and three inspiring life lessons at the end of every episode. Today, we're sharing a sneak peek of another great podcast called the Peter Atia Drive, which focuses on maximizing longevity through physical, cognitive, and emotional health. Most recently, Dr. Peter Atia sat down with Rick to talk about his approach to living intentionally, valuing time, prioritizing relationships, and more keys to living a rich life. This episode is a shortened version of Peter and Rick's full conversation. To hear it in full, head over to the Peter Atia Drive wherever you get podcasts, or visit peteratiamd.com for more great content about living longer, happier, and healthier. Hey everyone, welcome to The Drive Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Atia. This podcast, my website, and my weekly newsletter all focus on the goal of translating the science of longevity into something accessible for everyone. Our goal is to provide the best content in health and wellness, full stop, and we've assembled a great team of analysts to make this happen. If you enjoy this podcast, we've created a membership program that brings you far more in-depth content if you want to take your knowledge of this space to the next level. At the end of this episode, I'll explain what those benefits are, or if you want to learn more now, head over to peteratiamd.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. My guest this week is Rick Elias. You may remember Rick as we released a podcast with Rick back in November of 2019. I think it was episode 79. We spoke at great length about his experience on flight 1549, also known as the Miracle on the Hudson, in which his plane went down and was miraculously saved by Sully the pilot in the Hudson River. If you haven't yet listened to that interview, I recommend going back and doing so prior to this conversation, because in this conversation, we don't really repeat any of that amazing story. And I think that that story alone is worth the price of admission. In this episode, we talk about a bunch of things. We talk about what's been new in Rick's life since the last interview, which has been over three years. We talk about raising kids and how we should think about our relationship with them as they grow older. Talk about the importance of looking forward and not looking backward and how that ties into aging. In fact, there's a line that I use in the epilogue of my book that came directly from a discussion about this with Rick. Talk about the importance of true intentionality in how we live our lives and how we often don't really value our time if we think about it in relation to that. Talk about Rick's view on relationships and the impact that you can have on others, the importance of staying true to yourself and the importance of struggles and more. And every time I speak with Rick, I learn something new and walk away with a new insight, something that I'm challenged by and something that I need to think about. As a reminder, Rick's the co-founder and CEO of Red Ventures, a portfolio of digital companies, and hosts his own podcast called Three Things with Rick Elias. So without further delay, please enjoy my follow-up conversation with my dear friend, Rick Elias. Rick, great to have you back and great to be spending time with you. Obviously, we had dinner last night, which was wonderful. So thanks for coming to Austin. That was such a treat last night, getting to see you in full dad mode and beautiful family and great meal and lots of protein. <laughs> Indeed, lots of protein. So although we're in touch constantly from the standpoint of the listeners, the last time they got to interact with you was probably almost exactly three years ago, 2019. Sometimes when I have folks back on, especially if it's a technical podcast, I kind of want to talk about, okay, well, what's new information since that time? Well, this obviously isn't very technical. Hopefully folks remember a lot of the story that we talked about. But nevertheless, what do you think of as the highs and lows for you of the last three years? Because I know there have been both. 
Gosh, Peter, go back to that time. And we had a specific conversation about leadership. And we were talking about leaders are only leaders in a time of crisis. And we had talked about how the last decade had been super benign and how do we show up in crisis? And then 60 days later, 90 days later, boom, COVID hits. So a lot <laughs> changed if you think about it. The last three years have been the most tumultuous three years, no matter where you are in the world, not in any one country. And then you layer that with lots and lots of changes. My kids have gone to college. My mother, which we talked a lot about in the podcast, and my father-in-law and my aunt, which was like a second mom, all passed in that window. Our business went aggressively into offense when the market changed because we saw some opportunities. We bought some very meaningful businesses and then everything kind of further imploded in one way. And then, you know, and now we're living in, in the middle of a war, in the middle of uncertainty and all of that. So the world, like always, keeps changing and surprising us. We tend to project kind of today's reality into the future, but it's always changing. And how much of your even keel around all of these events, personal and professional, do you attribute to what happened in January of 2009? In terms of perspective, I mean. A lot. I really, I don't have a lot of lows. And I don't have a lot of high highs. I just, to me, it's this understanding that this too shall pass and doing what you can in the moment when you can is all that you really can do. And if you don't tie yourself up to the outcome as much and you're just really trying to stay in the process, I'm able to navigate this in great part because of that experience. One of the things we spoke about in the first podcast that you always have these moments of podcasts that sort of stick with you. And that's probably true for a listener. It's certainly true for the person doing the interview. There were a handful of moments. One of them was this image of raising children is playing a game of tug of war that you eventually lose. Now you can't lose it immediately. You can't just say, ready, go, let go of the rope. But by the time they're you know, off to college, they've pulled you over the line, metaphorically. At the time we had that discussion, you were still engaged in that tug of war, that your kids were not yet in college, now they are. I'm in the middle of that game, but I think about that constantly. Maybe start by retelling a little bit of that and explaining kind of if at all your thinking has evolved or what you've learned about that game in the last few years. So that was probably the last meaningful lesson I got from my mom. She had onset of Alzheimer's and we would have moments of that. And I came and I was having coffee with her and I asked her some advice about our daughter who was plenty teenagerhood. So she looked at me and said, my son raising teenagers is a tug of war. And then there was this silence. And then she says that you ultimately must lose. And it is, like you said, such an insightful all-encompassing statement about parenting. And it's really the transition from really being, they'll always be your kid, but you will not always be their parent. And it's that transition from no longer being their parent and maybe being more of a coach, maybe being more of an advisor, a friend, all of that. You will always treat them like your kid. So in our example, we're on the other side of this. I don't think of myself anymore as, you know, the parent. I will always be dad, but I'm not the parent. So the conversations are very different, and I love it. There have been times where both of our kids have looked at us and said, I really appreciate your opinion, but this is what I'm choosing to do. And to me, that's a sign of really good kind of sense of your own decisions. And we disagree with them, but it is good to see them in their journey of adulting now on their own. 
Yeah, I don't know why I'm not looking forward to it, but <laughs> it's one of those things that you know is healthy, good, important, but... You know, but have you noticed a difference in teenagerhood and how they start pushing away? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've always believed that the reason why teenagerhoods, teenagers are such a pain is so that you don't miss them when they leave. And I tell you, we love our kids and we're lucky that our kids love us back. But we high-fived each other when we dropped them off. <laughs> we did not cry. We were like, you know what? They're ready. We're ready. And empty nesting, it's a beautiful thing. You know, you still talk to them all the time and you still see them and all that. Then the funny part is that they're doing the same things that drove you crazy. You just don't see it. So <laughs> it doesn't feel as, as intense. So let's talk a little bit about... Well, I want to bring up something that happened kind of recently over the summer that I thought was spectacular. So early summer, you call me and said, hey, I'm having a, a get together in July, a couple of days, and I'm inviting. You gave me a bunch of details, none of which meant anything to me, right? What I took away from it was you wanted me to come out for a couple of days to your home. And there was going to be a bunch of other guys there, at least one of whom I knew, but most of whom I did not. Tell us about what was the motivation for that and why do you think that ended up being a really special time for, were there 40 of us there or something? About 30, yeah. 30, okay. When you go back through your year and you go back and ask yourself what was truly memorable of the year, at least in my case, there may be eight or 10 things that you will remember well into the future. And what is universal about those things is they're usually experiences and they're experiences with people that you have a deep connection with. So I have become very, very focused on creating experiences with people that I love as a way to create memorable moments of the year. Because I think that really is what we grow old with is the memories. But the memories alone are not enough. It's the memories with people and the more that kind of the richer. So I wanted to experiment with the concept of let's create a friend summit. Let's bring 30 super interesting friends. The uniqueness of it is everybody's been curated by me. Everybody there was a friend. So I think immediately everybody showed up with like, okay, if they're Rick's friends, I'm going to be open-minded. I'm not there kind of doing like, what do you do? Who do you are? It's more around how do you know Rick? And then what is interesting about each other? You know, we had a lot of the same participants speak that we curated, that we didn't over-orchestrate it, but we curated the agenda. And then we had all sorts of things around food and magician and all this other stuff. And the greatest thing happened, which is one of the things that I love most, is when my good friends become great friends. And I know for a fact because I was with Rick Hendrick a week ago and we spent 15 minutes talking about you, about Matt Walker, about other people that you guys all have become friends. And what greater currency in life than spreading love through friendship? And it was a huge home run because everybody there, even those who came as a gift to me, I think left with the gift of new friends. And at our age, it's not easy to make good new friends. And it is something that we can do by leveraging our own friendships. And you've been good to me in this regard. I asked you when I heard your interview with Matt, I said, hey, would you introduce me? And we become dear, dear friends. Like I talk to him all the time. So I don't know. It's all around this currency that friendships really matter in life. Memories, memorable moments really matter. And how do you bring all that together? I was surprised by the number of guys I walked away from that meeting with who I couldn't wait to see again. And, you know, it's like, hey, when I'm in LA, I'll give you a call. When you're in Austin, you give me a call. What did you learn during that summit? Because there was some structure to it as well, where there were folks that, you know, it was kind of like a bunch of fireside chats effectively. Did anything surprise you? Did you learn anything? 
I learned don't schedule something like that right after a vacation because I spent my whole vacation <laughs> thinking about, I in essence, kind of interview most people, including you. So that was a lesson, which is create some gap between something in your relaxing time. I learned that, you know, I think all of us, no matter what, need moments like that where no matter who you are to the outside world, you know, you're the one and the same in that group. So, you know, there were professional athletes, there were governors, there were CEOs, there were true people like are exceptional in their field like you, but everybody there was the same. I think that this knows this essence of the guard can be down from everybody. And yeah, for me, I got to like hang out with 30 of my best friends and give lots of hugs and catch up and have moments and create memories. And, you know, relationships take a lot of effort. And that was a really efficient way to like make huge deposits into a bunch of important accounts. I'm blanking on his name. He was the older gentleman on the very last day that spoke. Walter Green. No, 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 not Walter. I remember Walter. Marshall Roush. No, Walter was amazing in his own right. And actually, Walter's someone I want to have on the podcast. You should. You know, it's really funny. We used to be neighbors in San Diego and didn't even know it. Oh, my goodness. Lived in the same neighborhood, like lived a mile from each other. I love Walter Green. You know, Walter mentors 100 people like us, and we're all better because of it. So that's someone on our hit list for podcast guest. So Marshall, who's... I don't know, the guy's 200 years old. (laughs) 99, actually. And I think from Marshall came one of the most interesting lessons that you drew out. And it's a lesson about looking forward versus looking backward and how that ties to age. You want to recount that story? Yeah. So I've known Marshall about 20 years. I've had, I don't know, 100 lunches with Marshall. So when I met him, he was probably 81, 82, and he was still driving and he'll come in and there was something about Marshall, there is something about Marshall that is incredibly appealing and attractive. It is that every time you see him, once a month, every other month, he has a list of things that he has learned that he wants to talk about. He has ideas about things he wants to do. He's constantly evolving and thinking. And what I've learned from Marshall is that your age really can be told by what you think about. Aging of our spirit not of our bodies, not of our mind, but of our spirit. It's really about which mirror you're using. Are you using the rear view mirror or the windshield? I told a story there, right, where he's like completely worried about one of his kids and really thinking about giving them a tough lesson because it is time and he's asking for my opinion. And I said, Marshall, how old is your son? And he goes, uh, 72. So it was a point of he never stopped thinking and doing that. And that's how he leaves. He turns 100 in February and we're going to do something super special, I hope. The other story I like about him was I think when he was 96, he came to you with a pretty serious business idea. (laughs) And it was really predicated on trends over the next 10 years. Correct. And it was like, look, today this isn't necessarily an enormous opportunity, but here's all the data for why 10 years from now, this is a home run. We need to act now and make sure we build this business. And you're sort of thinking, you're 96 years old. Why are you thinking about a business opportunity that's going to you know, mushroom in the next 10 years? And he was a senator for North Carolina for 26 years. There's a highway named after him. He's uniqueness. He's a Jewish, but he made all his money selling Christmas ornaments, like all the things that are so <laughs> unique about him. And he's incredibly close to his kids and his grandkids. And he sees the world so clearly. Even when you talk about current events and politics today, he has a wisdom about 
he literally played basketball at Duke in 1939, I believe. You know, he went to World War II. This guy and all of that, you know, and he has had tremendous hardships. He lost his wife. He's lost some kids. And the dignity by which he handles it is just distilled in the wisdom of life that I find super attractive. I really think, and again, this is one of those, there's like the soft science and there's the hard science. I spend most of my life thinking about the hard science of living longer, the things that we can measure, the metrics we can measure, the biomarkers we can measure, how we can predicate our assumptions of risk based on X, Y, and Z. But there's simply no question that there are these soft metrics that we can't quantify, but they must matter. And I look at my dad as an example of this. So my dad, who is 85 years old, not the healthiest guy in the world, but he has outlived everybody in his completely unhealthy family by more than two decades. And to be clear, he's not remotely a beacon of health. <laughs> Even as your dad, huh? No, no, no. <laughs> Wouldn't listen to a thing I've said if my life depended on it, never mind the fact that his life depends on it. But I deep down believe that his relatively modest longevity, again, relative to what I think his genetic capacity, comes down to exactly this phenomenon is he never is looking back. He is planning. He is planning. He's got an idea. I mean, when he should have been retiring, he bought quarries. He bought swaths of undeveloped limestone land, you know, in his 60s with the idea that this is going to be, you know, there will be a demand for high quality limestone, dolomite, and granite in the next 30 years. And he's out there in a quarry every day. But the idea of just sitting around couldn't possibly occur to him, let alone relaxing. Now, again, we could talk about whether I think there's some, maybe one should enjoy life a little bit more, but for him, I think enjoyment is building, is thinking about opportunity. Like there's this niche for this market of limestone that nobody has really appreciated the value of, and that's where he's going to pour himself into. And it reminded me of that story with Marshall. I think there's something to be said by staying in the arena, even if you downshift. I think there's something that we say to your brain stays connected, you stay relevant, you don't feel old because you don't feel irrelevant. Yeah, I think it is important to stay on the field, but I also think it's important to understand that it's okay to move to a different position. Well said. I think that replacing this notion of like, I don't have the horsepower is redefining what that horsepower is that gives us continued feeling of growth. I think the importance of life is really not necessarily the looking forward, is constantly growing. I think the day that you stop growing is the day you age. I agree with that completely. You've probably heard me talk about the centenarian decathlon. And for me, one of the greatest motivations personally, and I do find that for many of my patients, because we talk about this in such detail, I think it's true for them also, is what they want to be able to do with offspring and more importantly, the children of their offspring. And you've probably seen me do this, but we do an exercise where you kind of build a timeline. You know, you put your age down and these are your kids. And then you start to estimate, you know, or bracket. My kids will likely have kids when they are this age, this age, this age. I will therefore be this age. And you don't need to spend too long doing this to come to the realization that the things that you want to be able to enjoy doing with your grandkids will range from the really extravagant, like I want to take them on the greatest vacation. We're going to go to Egypt and we're going to scale the Great Pyramids and go down the Nile. Okay, well, that's great. Alternatively, it's going to be the really mundane. Like I want to be able to play catch. I wanted to share with you a story that I haven't shared yet, which is 
After the plane crash, a couple of weeks later, I was watching my daughter perform in kindergarten. It was a really important moment of the realization of like, for now, this is my most important purpose, which is to really help my kids become adults. And it came full circle without me knowing it. I was at her graduation from high school. She's a sophomore now in college. And they're coming down and it was outside because of COVID and they're coming down this kind of hallway in the same emotion that had not happened for, I don't know, 11 years happened. I started bawling uncontrollably as I saw her. I didn't expect it. It came out of nowhere. I'm not a crier. I'm, I'm not afraid to cry, but I'm not walking around. And it was a realization that I had lived to the moment where she had become her own person. And the graduation from high school was a lot more meaningful than just the graduation, at least in my experience. It was a realization that she can fly on her own now. It was a moment. It was a moment for me in that realization, but in also realizing that, okay, I now have more capacity to broaden purpose. Right? I think we're all seeking purpose, so it's not like you finish it. It's just you evolve it. I was very grateful to have had that experience because seldomly in life do you get to see the end of the circle come back. It's usually a line that goes somewhere or nowhere. By this point in the podcast, I think most people, if they haven't familiarized themselves with this story, should probably go back and listen to that section of our podcast is the way I think you you tell that story. This is probably the longest version you've told of it because obviously you have a TED talk where you go through it in some detail, which is really moving. But I think also just the, you know, I'm still, so remember how I said from our first meeting, there are a couple of things that stand out. The other thing that really stands out from our first podcast, which is something you sort of said in almost passing. Do you know what I'm about to say? Uh, no. I've shared this with you, but it's when the plane is coming down and you're going through, once you realize there's about 10 seconds until you're going right, to die, right. you said a couple of things. One, it's very calm. You weren't scared. Mm. You were sad. You're very sad. And you put your hand on your leg or on your other hand, on, my arm. on your arm, and said, I love you. That's mm -hmm. the last thing you said to yourself before you would have died. Close my eyes. And I just couldn't believe that. I was like, that's the last thing I'd ever think to say. What would you have said? I probably would have said nothing. I probably would have just been very sad. And yeah, I don't think there would have been any gratitude or anything like that in me. Mm -hmm. no. Have you actually asked any of the other people on the flight what they did, said, thought in the last 10 seconds? No, I haven't. And I will, because I think it would be interesting. I would, there's a whole book there. Yeah, for sure. And remember that we had no suffering. I imagine if you're dying, you know, in some level of distress, you know, your mind is in a very different place coping. But that's what makes this such an interesting quote unquote control experiment yeah. is, yeah, you weren't on fire. And it's 90 seconds. You know, a lot of people have near death experience that lasts a second or two seconds. I've reflected a lot, Peter, on the TED Talk was a moment in time, and it was all around, okay, here's kind of the three regrets I felt as the plane was coming down. And we talked a lot about them in the other podcast. We should revisit them, by the way, just yeah. so that folks can see it all in one yeah. place. So it was this notion that everything changes in an instant. So time really, really matters. It was this notion that relationships are at the core of the richness of life, but yet we spend a lot of time with our ego kind of leading the charge. And then this notion with around my kids, which is I wasn't living true to what I discovered was my true purpose at the time or my main, main purpose, which is seeing my kids. And it was the regret that I felt at the time of my 
look like death, to have missed it, to have not been clear that that really was the, I don't know, the map, you know, the key to living, you know, a better life. You know, as I reflect on all of that, what's interesting is nothing has really changed, but it's not around regrets. Say more. You know, for example, instead of it being around everything changes in an instant, so living the moment, it is that, but it's wrapped around a notion of having true intentionality about how we live our life. And true intentionality about how we live a life is a really big, deep bucket that I've spent lots and lots of time thinking about. It has a lot to do with time. And the reality with time, and I've heard this and I love it, is like the problem with time is the same problem that we have most things that are free. We don't value it. If we like had to get up and like really spend real money on time, I bet you we will behave differently. And the problem with time is, as we have learned about sleep, is you have to do a lot of things to extend your time. Some so that you're more productive the next day, like sleep, and some like nutrition and exercise so that you have more time, right? So a lot of what you are really trying to do is convince people that there are things they can do to have more quality and meaningful time. But it is a lot more than that. To me, to live with intentionality is around kind of combining a lot of things into where we spend our energy and what the things that we stop doing and how do we kind of reverse things that we don't want to do. So I really think that this notion of having complete intention is really at the core of living a more rich life. So I feel my life to be very rich because, for example, I have 242 weeks left until I turn 60. You know, I have all these little exercises where I'll say, okay, what are my big intentions this week? Because, you know, at 60, I'm in a different energy level. I'm probably paying a bunch of physical debts back. Like, there's a lot that will come back. And, and I live in chunks of my life with just great intention. It is because of that. Because I realize that everything really is fleeting, but it's not just around time and time only. And that manifests itself. In the second one, when you talked about relationships, what I realized is that, you know, a little bit of the event that we were talking about, I want to continue to meet new people that I can learn from. I am addicted to learning and growth. And the best way to do that is through other people. So the amount of energy I put into friendships, because it's not relationships. You know, the good news is when you're in business, you have a lot of deal friends. The key is how do you convert them into real friends? Who do you want to convert into real friends? And to be a real friend, talk about a skill to be learned. Talk about it being a never-ending journey. Now, how do you approach that? So I'm really, really, I have an enormous amount of great friends, more than most, because I spent the bulk of my time on that. You know, if you go back to time, there's only three things you can do with it. You can waste it, which a lot of teenagers do. You can use it in things that are value, and then you can invest it. There's nothing else you can do with time. So the ratio of what you do with those three components has a lot to do with it. So guys like you and I, at least, we don't waste a lot of time. The question is, how much are you using it for things that give you pleasure or things that you want to do, and how much are you investing? And that will ultimately continue to pay dividends in life. So if you look at your time, you'll know how much of that it is. And if you're using too much in something at some point becomes wasteful, you may. So relationships are super rich. And then the last thing is, you know, and this notion of purpose is how do you expand that? So I spent a lot of time trying to continue to evolve the gift and not look at it as a moment in time, but as a 
some level of a map into the future and as I continue to age. Well, Rick, as always, awesome to sit down and catch up on life. Congratulations on all of your successes in the past couple of years in particular. And I can't say enough to you. You've had an incredible impact on my knowledge of myself and exercise and nutrition and how I'm going to live. And I know that the last 10 years of my life, I should name after you because you've <laughs> helped me a lot. And I love our friendship and I love how we can be so honest with each other and raw. And I'm humbled you would have me, especially a second time. So great fun. Thanks, Rick. If you'd like to hear more of Rick and Peter's conversation, be sure to check out the Peter Atia Drive wherever you get your podcasts. And listen to Rick's previous conversations with Marshall Rausch, who just celebrated his 100th birthday, and Captain Sullenberger, the pilot who saved Rick's life on Flight 1549, right here on Three Things with Rick Elias. Rick Elias.